Hello and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. Portfolio manager Dan DuPont is today's guest, catching up with host Pat Bolland. Since joining Fidelity in 2001 as a research analyst, Dan has gone on to manage several mandates, including a portion of Fidelity Northstar Fund, managing Fidelity Canadian Large Cap Fund, a value-oriented large cap strategy, and Fidelity Global Value Long Short Fund. You might be asking yourself, how has Dan, a value investor, done managing a long short fund? Today, Dan explains how he manages this liquid alternative strategy with the same investment principles as his long-only ones. This includes a look at how merger arbitrage works, a continued focus on downside protection, and Dan comments on macro variables and the market cycle. Dan also takes questions from the live audience, as this discussion was originally featured at a live event for financial advisors. As this was from a live event, you'll hear references to a few slides being displayed to the room. Today's podcast was recorded on December 8th, 2022. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada ULC or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or an endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. So I saw uh, McMillan in the athletic gear this morning and he was going out for a run. Jeff Moore was in athletic gear and he was going down for coffee. I have my sources that say you were in athletic gear. Are you a coffee guy or a runner? Way more coffee, mostly since I launched this new fund, it's a lot more coffee than working out. <laughs> Try to balance the two, but it's been a little tough. So what were you doing today? You went for a run? Today, uh, no, today I was just relaxed. I went to lunch with Steve and Hugo and a bunch of the other guys. Oh, cool. You guys talk a lot? Uh, we do. I mean, we've been working together for so long, it's become more of a family than a workplace, really. Uh, and that includes sales as well. I mean, just meeting the people. It includes you. You're oh, part oh, of the family, too. Yeah. Thanks. Oh, oh, You've so been doing this a long time. <laughs> the reason I ask is that you characterize, and, and Steve McMillan is obviously a patient investor. He takes a, a long time. And you call yourself aggressively patient. Yeah. What's that mean? It just very simply means that I try to do the simple things, but I try to do them extremely well, meaning you need to wait for a really, really uh, attractive price before investing in a company that you really like. Uh, and that takes a lot of patience. So it's not something that's complicated to do. We have the analysts to analyze companies. And so that's been the process since the beginning in Canadian Large Cap Fund, which was 2011. And that's a process that I had brought on with Global Value Long Short as well. But just waiting for my opportunity means I'm not gonna own many companies uh, that I really like, um, some that I even love, but they're just too expensive for me. Sometimes you get a nice surprise and they get to a price you wanna pay for them and you can buy a few shares and sometimes you can buy many shares. I mean, Kushtard ended up on my radar two years ago when there was a rumor of an acquisition. And for a few days, uh, it traded a very attractive price and I made it a four or 5% position. That's the aggressive part. That is the aggressive part, yeah. I mean, March 2020 is the same. You know, within a day or two, I spent uh, about a billion dollars mostly on Canadian financials. As things were unraveling, there was probably forced selling somewhere in the market and the prices were very, very attractive. So 
The difficult part is not pulling the trigger there. The difficult part is being patient enough to get that opportunity when it arises. You must have loved the past year because a lot of stuff came back yeah. to your range. The past year has been, I'm, I mean, I'm sorry for you know, some of your clients who may have lost money in their portfolios, but for me, it's been a lot of fun. It's been great. Um, it's been, uh, well, thank you. It's been an environment that has come back to reality. I think that the last 12 years, we've been in an environment where interest rates were a little lower than they should have been. We've had some experimentation, both at the fiscal and monetary level, to a value-driven, valuation-driven, patient investor like me that thinks about downside all the time about uh, on every position. It really felt like we had gone down the rabbit hole, and I was there, and I just, you know, just pushing forward, just doing my thing, doing my process, being patient. But it really, it was a difficult two years for um, valuation-centric investing, focusing more on fundamentals. And then all of a sudden this year, finally, inflation came in, and central banks realized that you know, Alice in Wonderland might not be the normal environment to invest, and they increased interest rates. And all, all of a sudden, some people have been in this business for more than a decade and, and don't understand what's going on. They think some things are just way underpriced. When in fact, when you have normalized interest rates, a lot of things actually trade at a price they haven't traded in a decade and a half or two decades. So honestly, to me, it's been great to see things coming back closer to where they should trade. There's still, in my view, a decent amount to go. Value relative to growth historically tends to outperform a little bit, um, and it tends to come back when it's underperformed massively. We've had a little bit of a comeback, but you know, if you look at the charts, it's definitely not uh, all the way back. So we've had the most obvious reversal in that trend. We've had the most obvious reversal to normalization of valuations. We've seen the most egregiously overpriced securities come back down to earth. So I'd say the easy part of it is done. I'm still the same defensive investor and I still think we need to be positioned a little bit more defensively than aggressively. And if I miss a massive rebound, well, I'll try to navigate it the way I've always navigated rebounds like in spring of 2019, et cetera. So it's been a, an interesting year, but it, it, for an investor focused on valuation and, and protection of capital, it's been great. I really want to talk about that global value long short, but I do want to expand a little bit about your process and your comments on downside protection because we have a really cool chart that has Canadian uh, large cap on and the downside market capture figure is uh, amazing. Yeah, so that chart is based on data from when I started managing the fund. It's based on monthly data. So when a month is down, the fund is typically captured about 33%, 34% of the downside. Uh, and that's how we outperform over time in that fund. Because as you see on the left side, the up capture is less than 100, which means that on, in up months, we don't uh, typically outperform the market. But the compounding effect of being down less than the market, or as is happening this year, being up when the market is down, tends to compound significantly, and it's a very powerful compounding effect. But when you protect capital well, it doesn't take that much of a rebound for you to outperform the rest of the pack while delivering a result that keeps you in because the volatility is so low. The other technique that you've used over time is merger arbitrage. Yeah. And we have a chart that addresses that as well, because I think it needs to be explained 
in the context of a long only, but also later on we'll bring it up within the context of a long short. So talk to me uh, about what we're looking at here from a yeah. long only merger arbitrage. Yeah. So the chart uh, there is uh, represent a cash arbitrage, which is what we've done in Canadian large cap when there was nothing better to invest in, when I was trying to be extremely patient. So you would have had several of those in the first quarter of 2020, like January, February, uh, when I was more defensively positioned. And then when the market corrected very rapidly, we got rid of those situations to buy companies that were very depressed in price. So what is a merger arbitrage situation? One of them currently is Amazon buying iRobot, for example, for a fixed price. So let's say, the price, it's not $10, let's say the price is $10. On that chart, it's the offer price. And that's where uh, eventually, if the transaction gets through, if it happens and all of the conditions are met, that's what you will get uh, for your shares of iRobot. There's several hurdles to every transaction closing, including financing, including regulatory approvals in all the geographies involved, et cetera. So it's a fairly complicated situation, a lot of things to look at, but from a risk return perspective, it's lower risk than a stock and it's low return. What's helped in the merger arbitrage world, which has helped all of the long shorts funds as well, by the way, as, as Brett was saying, is interest rates are higher, so the hurdle rate for these securities, uh, for these transactions is higher. So people, historically, when rates were zero, were hoping to make 4%, 3-4% in a transaction like that, but now it's much higher because interest rates are 3-4% higher. Yeah, but at the time of the merger, like interest rates in a T-bill would have been close to zero, so you're picking right. up that. Right, but if a transaction is announced today and has a 12-month to close expectation, it should be 4% plus a spread over that. So you can make 7 8% annualized in those types of transactions. But what I would love is for the market you know, to be cheap enough and to, to have enough opportunities uh, around for me to not invest in arbitrage, but this is just what we have done for more than a decade in Canadian large cap cash merger arm situations just to be more patient and wait for better opportunities. And sometimes we'll fully invest it in the sense that we have none of those. Sometimes we have a few of those in the fund. And right now, Canadian Large Cap has quite a few merger arm situations. Uh, towards the end of this, I'm going to throw up a chart that's going to show performance of uh, Canadian uh, Large Cap, and you've done very well on that. But I want to turn the attention to the global value, a long short, because it, it involves being long and short at the same time, obviously. Do you run the long side the way you do with um, Canadian large cap? The process on the long side is uh, very similar to what I do in Canadian large cap, but the obvious difference is that Canadian large cap fund has a limit, uh, must be invested at least 51% in Canada. Um, so I typically take advantage of that opportunity. So if you look at the Canadian content in Canadian large cap, it'll be somewhere between 50 and 55. And I'd love to go outside and, you know, the world's your oyster. So you, you know, we have so many analysts that have managed or analyzed so many great companies. Uh, and when they get to a cheap price, you're, you know, you have so many more companies to choose from. So I like to do um, some of that in Canadian large cap. But in Global Value Long Short, it's a global fund with a global benchmark, it's the MSCI world. So it's a world index, small, mid, large cap. I can do um, anything in that fund that relates to equity. So it's been, um, it's been good. It's been fun to look at 
a bit more opportunities. And then we can also short, which has added a little bit of uh, an option to create more value and create more alpha for, for investors. So there is a question here in the app, what's your track record on merger arb, going back to the prior discussion, and how many have you done? So since I launched a new fund, I've, I've stopped keeping track as closely, but my estimate is that in the last 11, 12 years, I've been involved in about 350 merger arb transactions. Um, and I think there's four that didn't close. There's probably around seven or eight that had bumped up uh, prices, which includes, I mean, you know, let's go down memory lane. It includes the, the Dell uh, take private transaction where Michael Dell was, was um, reluctant to pay a slightly higher price. And what's interesting in the merger arb world is if you're well-connected enough, you can have an idea of how people are voting for and against, and you can have a feel for um, where you are relative to that. And we were basically the swing vote, mm -hmm. so we voted against, and then finally, um, you know, there was an increase. Uh, we, we think we were the swing vote. We can't ever be sure, but we think we were kind of in there. We were important to push that price slightly up. Michael Dell offered, I think, 25 cents more, and then a lot of people just changed their minds and said, okay. But, yeah, so it's been uh, interesting. It's a decent amount of work, but I think it's worth it as you're waiting for better opportunities because um, uh, you know having the firepower to buy aggressively when a coup start comes along or one of those situations, it's important to be able to do that. Or March 2020, when you know we get the call because we have the liquidity in, in my funds, um, you know, deploying almost a billion dollars in literally 10 minutes when we got a call from the street. There's not a lot of people who can do that. Yeah, I didn't realize that. That does give you a lot of uh, liberty, liberty and latitude. You can raise cash fast. Yeah, um, Merger Arb is very liquid. Sometimes we have a bit of cash as well and sometimes uh, other liquid assets. But yeah, it is, uh, Merger Arb is, is a very liquid part of the market. Okay, so let's go back to long short because we have a, a graph where you find shorting opportunities as well. So talk to me about what your long and short. So talk to me about what I'm looking at here. So on the long side, it's very similar to all of my other products in terms of process. It's looking for very cheap, quality companies that can compound over time. Sometimes they're slightly less quality, but they're cheaper. It's a balancing act of all of these things. It's the same as I've been doing in North Star and Canadian Large Cap for years now. And then on the short side, there's two buckets there. One of them is merger ARB, but that includes long and short uh, of security. So we can now get involved in merger ARB that includes a, sh a company offering shares to buy another one. The latest one that's basically now completely changed, but Goldfields of South Africa was offering to buy Yamana. There, you know, somebody else came on, on top of that, but Goldfields was offering shares of itself to Yamana uh, in exchange for the business. So we can get involved in a situation like that now, which I couldn't before, because you need to short the acquirer and go along the acquiree to make that spread. And the other side of the shorts is what we call the opportunistic bucket, which is securities that I feel and we feel as a firm are, is expensive and we believe that we can make money on the short side like Brett and Dave have been discussing. It has included in the last year a lot of securities that were very overpriced that were probably going to survive. More and more as the cycle advances, there's balance sheet issues that are popping up. Uh, and the new bucket of shorts in that area, that I, in, in the opportunistic shorts that I've created over the last month or two, is uh, um, overpriced defensive stocks. So companies that are seen as being extremely good quality where people are hiding in the market and they don't really care about valuation, 
when they're at an extreme point relative to history, it's possible to figure out how we're going to make money when these valuations come back down a bit more to reality. Okay, so let's break that apart a little bit. The merger arbitrage, are, they, are you getting the same kind of yield is the wrong word, but same kind of returns same, uh, yes. as you got on the cash arbitrage? Yes, it's exactly the same. Seven, seven, eight percent? Yes. And the short opportunities. Okay. Do you use any leverage? No. So in simple terms, and uh, you know, for those of you who are wondering whether you should invest in a fund like that, because it sounds a little bit more complicated, you know, I was exactly where you are uh, maybe right now, four or five years ago when, when I was approached about this fund. And I really, I, I love to understand how things work. I think sometimes people hide behind you know, their expert status, and sometimes they don't actually understand things. So I, I love to ask the stupid question. So that fund, I want it to be uh, as simple as possible. So it's only equities. And what we do, I think as Brett explained fairly well, is you know, we have the ability to short and therefore we can borrow securities and short up to 50% of the net asset value of the fund. And we get for that, if you have $100 in the fund, you get an extra 50. So you end up short $50 of securities and you have now $150 to invest on the long side. Now we obviously never get to that extreme, like the 150, 50 exactly, but um, that's kind of the idea of the maximum positioning. And so that 150 will include, for me, some very good long ideas around the world, Europe, Asia, Canada, US, but also it will include some cash arbitrage. And then on the short book, it will include the two different buckets that I talked about, merger arbitrage and opportunistic shorts. It would seem intuitively that that would enhance your downside protection, but is that the case? Wow, that's a great question. So back to the earlier question of you know meme stocks and, and everything. So Q1 of 2021 uh, was maybe a few months into managing this fund. I really thought I knew exactly what I was doing. I'm a long-term portfolio manager on the long side, so I've read everything there's to read, and I I have a you know a year and a half of experience on the pilot. And then the meme situation arises, and yeah, Fight Club really started. And I really learned how to position myself, position sizing, risk mitigation. Uh, and eventually, not only was I able to risk mitigate, but I was able to really understand the mechanics of everything and take really advantage of a lot of situations where some people might be nervous to even look at it. But you know, if you take a 10 basis point short in a company that's worth a billion dollars, but trading at $20 billion, even if it moves around 5 10% a day at some point, it will go back to at least being worth around $3 billion. Um, so you can make a decent amount of money, it's just a position sizing is incredibly important. We talked about Carvana in the previous presentation. Carvana went from $20 to $60 this summer uh, in about five weeks, uh, around the time when all of us, uh, Brett, Dave, and myself, were explaining in presentations that it's probably worth around zero. And right now, the stock yesterday was around four. I don't know where it is today, but it probably is still a company that has an equity value that's close to zero. So we'll see where it goes. But the lower it goes, the more volatile it becomes. And so it, it's just a matter of managing all of that. I, I love it. Honestly, it's really reinvigorated me. Uh, my love for the job has been increased significantly since I started managing this, this product. As you know, Pat, my kids are getting older, and I was just looking for a hobby. And uh, when they offered me this fund, I thought, wow, <laughs> this is something new. So let's Running do that. multi-millions is a hobby for you. <laughs> it's, it, I mean, it is. I mean, it's just uh, it's my, a lot of the times I start my second shift at night, you know, after dinner. 
you know, power up um, everything again and do some some reading and trade in Asia and prepare the trades for Europe. And I'm I feel lucky to have you know my passion being my job, and this is just reinvigorated, which is double lucky. Last slide that I've got is the uh, let's compare and contrast the two mandates that you get. Well, not the only two mandates that you got, but the two we've been talking about: uh, the global value, long, short, and uh, large cap. Yeah, so as we said earlier, uh, Canadian large cap has up to 49% foreign content. I don't have that restriction in global value long short. I can go up to 100% foreign. Market cap focus is obviously large cap fund needs to be mostly in large cap uh, stocks. In global value long short, I must say I'm more of a, val a large cap investor at heart, so you will find mostly large caps there. If you go through the holdings, don't be shocked. I don't have a lot of small caps or, or mid caps. I feel more comfortable in the large cap space unless there's an extreme value there that we want to go aggressively after. In terms of leverage, as, as we explained, there's no bank debt. There's nothing complicated here. It's only equities. There's no options, swaptions, futures. There's nothing. I wanted it to be really, really simple. The only leverage that we have is when we sell a security, we get cash. And we may use that cash to buy another security. We won't leave it there. Um, so that's, that's the leverage that we have. The process is pretty much the same. The one that you've um, seen from me for over a decade. The only little, um, you know, uh, little difference I would say now versus before I started managing this fund uh, is through the last two years, Global Value Long Short has taught me to respect momentum way more. And so I don't need to be the one that shorts the peak peak in a stock. I can be patient and wait for more information. Even if you, in a Carvana, even if you miss the first 20%, if it's going to zero, you're gonna make 100% anyway. Um, and so that's really been um, ingrained in me in the last two, two and a half years. And I've adjusted that in all of my other products as well to, to huge benefit, frankly. You know, there's a particular security that I will not name that I own for four days this summer. It actually showed up in the June holdings, so everybody's asking me about it. It's a large cap tech company. And I sold it four days later because we met the CFO and, and I just sitting, sitting there and I'm thinking, you know, this is, this is a value trap. Like you just, this is typical of you. You've, you know, just be careful. It, it sounds horrible. It's cheap, but it's going to get cheaper. You know it. And, and so I feel really proud of having adjusted my process for the better. And that fund has brought me that knowledge. Uh, and I'm, I'm really happy that I can, you know, transfer some of that knowledge to my other products. After the four days, did the stock keep going up? Oh, no, it went way down. It did. But we don't need more I mean, comfortable that, not having it. Well, I felt comfortable not owning it as it was going down, yeah. Oh, I see. I was very okay, happy with that. Okay. Um, but we'll stop talking about that stock because okay. eventually people Never will figure out which one it is. Never going to mention it again. I'm also not going to read this question because uh, I'm going to save that for later on, just so you know. Yep. But it's, it is a good one. I, I want to hear your opinion on the economy right now and where we are as far as the Canadian economy and how that taints or informs your investment decisions. Yeah, as I, as I like to say, I'm very defensive generally, and I've predicted you know, 12 of the last two recessions. That's just my style, that's what I do. And uh, I look for potholes, and I look for problems that could arise. I look for things that could create you know, an environment that's tougher and try to avoid going in that, in that direction. And I think in Canada, I've given uh, recently some of the examples I've seen that are vivid in my mind to explain some of the numbers that are behind what's happening. So I was, you know, on, on my brother's porch and the, the, the neighbor had sold a house and I asked how much. He said a million and a half. And I said, wow, how old is he? What is he going to do now? He's 45, retired. 
And I thought, wow, he's retiring. He's pretty young. And my brother said, well, there's 20 houses on the street, and there's only me and, and one other guy that's working. Nobody's working because they made money either with their business or their house, and they just decided it's, it's enough. And it's a, kind of a family neighborhood. So that was one anecdote that day. And the same day, I was sitting with my son and his girlfriend, and she works at Tim Hortons. And she was explaining to me that everyone that works there is between the ages of 16 and 20. The manager's 22. And then somebody came in that day uh, in the drive-thru and was asking for a frappuccino, which is not sold at Tim Hortons. And that person just you know, yelled at her just to make, because she's stupid, you know, yes, you do sell it, make me a frappuccino. And so she made something that looked like a frappuccino. Um, <laughs> and in, in the end, what, what we see, that's an extreme, these two anecdotes are an extreme um, uh, representation of what's happening, what needs to recede, and what you know, monetary and fiscal authorities have to work on is there's a lot of people who made a lot of money during the, 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 epidemic, the, the pandemic, the two years through checks in the mail, but mostly through appreciation of assets, mostly in Canada, real estate, which went up 60%. Mm. And so I think that needs to recede. Rates need to be up for a while, and people need to spend uh, the extra money that they saved so that slowly things get a little less bad on the inflation front. So that's, I think, where we are. And, and you know, one of the incredible statistics that I, I like to remind people right now is where mortgage delinquencies are. Because everybody's talking about how tough real estate is, mostly in Canada, and is it over, is it done, is it enough? Well, what the fiscal and monetary authorities are trying to do is reduce inflation, and to do that, we need people to start being a little bit more stressed and to bring them back to work. Because uh, right now, everybody's rich and nobody's working. Um, so the, the mortgage delinquencies in Canada historically are between 25 basis points and 100 basis points. Mm. Um, and they spike at 100 basis points, and they don't stay there very long. And then they're, for, they're at 25 basis points for a long time, for years sometimes. I think from you know, 2011 to 2019, they were around there. And uh, so 0.25% is... 25 basis points uh, for the non-initiated. And currently, mortgage delinquencies are at 10 basis points. They're at a level that we've practically never seen in history. And, and so there's one in 1,000 people that haven't paid their mortgages, uh, their mortgage in a few months. So that tells you everybody's flush with cash, mostly those that have real estate. That's why we've seen people traveling. That's why hotel prices have been so expensive. Um, and on the flip side, you have the people who trying to give the frappuccinos to these people who are running out of money from their checks. And so they're going to Dollarama, like um, Dave was saying, and we are seeing the sales of uh, groceries at Dollarama go up markedly. Um, so this is, in, in a nutshell, what's happening and what needs to keep happening. We've seen very little stress in the credit markets. Are we gonna see a credit cycle? It's highly possible. I mean, it's been a long time since we've actually had one. 2020 was not a credit cycle. Nobody went bankrupt. There's no credit distress whatsoever anywhere in the world. So I think it's a possibility that we haven't seen the middle of this slowdown. I think we could hit a recession. Now, the question is, how much of it is discounted? How much of it is not? That's where the art comes in. That's where our analysts are working on margins. Where are they going to go? We're starting to see our analyst work matter more than it did last year. We're seeing Target report bad numbers, and we're seeing you know Walmart report great numbers, which are very similar companies, right? Yeah. In the last year and a half, everybody was having issues with labor, uh, with uh, getting inventory, and now how they've managed all of that is starting to show. So it's an interesting period. I think we still need to be a little bit cautious, but again. You know, just 
I'm always cautious. But it's exciting to see that our analysts' work is starting to pay more and more. Okay, so how do you use that information? Are, are, would you use Canadian housing, for instance, if that's where everybody made their money, then as soon as it sees cracks, then you'll be satisfied that we're seeing some kind of a retracement? Well, it depends what is discounted again. I mean, I'm not trying to see around three corners. We're, we're trying to see around half a corner. And, you know, right now, around half that corner, real estate is just, it has to come down more. So we'll see where it stops. And I'm not trying to predict that too much. But if you look at Canadian banks, they're 1.5, 1.6 times book for most of them in an environment where credit is probably going to deteriorate. And it typically bottom at you know 1.1 historically when we have credit problems. So I'm invested somewhere else. If we don't have a credit cycle, we'll try to make money elsewhere. But if we do, um, you know, I think it'll it'll be somewhat impactful on businesses that have leverage like a bank would would have. Banks have assets to equity ratios that are in the 18 to 20 times range. So you don't need a lot of drop in your assets and the underlying assets or the houses mm. of all of the whole system for your equity eventually to be impacted or for most of your earnings to disappear for a quarter or two or four or six. One of the things that came up and I'd love your take on it is that you know earnings season goes through, especially in the high tech uh, space and corporations acted on it. In other words, the no their numbers weren't great and they said, okay, we're firing a whole whack of people. What's your take on that? Well, we're certainly not seeing it in the unemployment rate yet. Not yet. So that's what we have to, to look at. It's easy to have a, you know, just a, a news story about a company firing 5,000 or 10,000 people or Elon Musk going in at Twitter and firing 10,000 people. Mm. But, you know, the U.S. is a huge economy. Maybe they get hired somewhere else because they're short-staffed in a lot of industries, most in the service side. So maybe the unemployment rate doesn't rise as fast as we expect, and maybe inflation stays a little stick here. So it's all things we need to analyze on a real-time basis and make sure that we don't get too impacted by. But yeah, the, the unemployment rate has not ticked up significantly yet. It is kind of a back, uh, backward-looking statistic, so you have to be careful. Um, but you know, we'll, we're, we're looking at data as it comes in. Where are you seeing the best, uh, the global fund is obviously global. Where are you seeing the best opportunities right now? I think it's pretty- Long and short. In, in, in global value, long short, I can look at the world and it's pretty obvious that Europe is the place where there's the most cheapness. Uh, the energy crisis has created a lot of discounted valuations. We have to parse through which companies are gonna be impacted massively, maybe even more than what is discounted and vice versa. Which ones are actually gonna get through with a contingency plan that you know does not increase prices or um, costs too much. And if they're global, they can actually sell in a currency that's probably appreciated against the euro mm. in the last year. So again, the analysts are uh, coming in and as being much more helpful because the environment has, is helping them be more helpful. There's more discrepancy between companies, between countries, geographies. Um, the UK is, you know, is its own basket case. There's a lot of cheapness there, but on the flip side, there's also, you know, a lot of issues from uh, government budget and just the employment in general is very government oriented, et cetera. So you have to look at every situation on its own, but it, you know, there's certainly a lot of great multinationals in Europe that have been quite discounted more and more and more every year. And we're probably at the point where it's, it's time to put your toe in the water. 
but I've learned in the last two years, as I said, to respect momentum more. So I don't expect to go aggressively in, in one direction. You know, we have a few positions, you know, one in France, one in Belgium, one in Germany. We have several in the UK, you know, Austria. Um, so it's, it's diversified. It's, it's, you know, it's one-offs that I think have everything that we're looking for. Valuation, downside protection, good global footprint if possible, and well-run, et cetera. And the short side? So the short side used to be, um, it used to be a lot of valuation. So software names at 80 times sales. There were um, pipe dreams. So um, the whole electrification of transportation area was a very interesting area last year. There's some of them that are gonna come out winners. We don't know which ones, but you can actually tell which ones are not going to be. So, you know, companies that don't have a dollar of sales yet, are burning three, $400 million of cash a quarter, are very promotional, and you can see that the people managing these businesses are trying to get rich. They're doing everything to be good marketers and don't really have a product. A particular truck being pushed down a hill last year kind of comes to mind, right? So there were some very, very easy situations. Some were a little bit more complicated, but that was certainly an area. But as the market has shifted, the, um, slowly but surely, we still have some shorts. Uh, on the software names a little bit. It went to zero um, at some point this summer, and now we've put back some of them, uh, a few of them on. Electrification of transportation is the same. It almost went to zero. I think I was down to less than a percent of the net asset value of the fund that was short companies related to electrification of, of transportation, so electric cars mostly. And then all of a sudden, Biden came out with the Inflation Reduction Act, which sends a lot of money uh, this, these companies way, and so they all bounced massively. And then you can do your work again and see, okay, are they really going to benefit from this, or is there a lot of short covering going on from people who just were shorting, shorting in the hole, as they say, which means shorting more and more as the company goes down, which can be quite dangerous. Is it uh, fair to characterize the long short as an international arbitrage? In other words, long Europe, short USA, I guess. There's a little bit of that, but as was discussed in the previous session, we have a risk uh, management committee and, and, and uh, department that is just, you know, creates these 60, 100 page reports on how we are correlated in our positions, where the risks are, either direct or indirect. Uh, and as we all know, we also want to stress test because, when, you know, when, when problems arise, correlations go to one. Uh, and, you know, you have to be positioned to be able to withstand those correlations changing massively and sometimes very rapidly. So yes, there's probably a little bit of that, but we're being very cautious about it. And I'm also not running into that because I've learned that historically I was too quick to try to go where the valuation discounts were and where the cheapness was. I respect momentum a bit more and I, I'll go slowly in and I'll, I'll change the positioning, but slowly. You and I have discussed in the past uh, sectors like materials and energy. What are your thoughts on those currently? Interestingly this year for somebody that's typically defensive and that thought that there was a high possibility of a slowdown and or recession coming. You would have thought that my funds would have been underweight energy or maybe even short energy and global value long short. But based on our analysts' work, I decided to stay long a few of those securities and do not 
really short anything, mostly in energy. In commodities, there were opportunities to short when there was the belief that some of these companies would massively benefit from electrification of transportation through their copper or lithium exposure. But I'd say in energy, the supply-demand picture was so attractive that I really thought it was dangerous to short anything there. And in fact, I really wanted to own a few of those. So even in Canadian large cap fund, you'll see there's a few energy companies there still, whereas three, four years ago, my weight in energy was zero. I now want to throw up some of your performance numbers because we're down to about eight minutes or so. And so we've got lots of time to discuss your performance overall. And I know you don't blow your own horn, but I'm going to do it for you because I'm, when I'm looking at Canadian large cap, everybody, you know, the investing universe didn't have a good year. I think 2021 for me was a better year relative to my process than this year. Fundamentally, the great businesses that were cheaper did well this year. We got a little bit of luck this year from owning you know, defense companies. For example, we had two uh, in large cap and, and three or four in global value long short. And then when Russia invaded Ukraine, all of a sudden everybody decided that they wanted to own defensive uh, defense companies. So that's one small example. But um, you know, just staying with the process and uh, keep doing what I've been doing for more than 10 years. And, and I truly believe that this is a process that outperforms quite significantly over time with less volatility. It's just that you have to get through the years that can be a little tougher. You know, so I've, I don't, I've never had a negative calendar year, which again, helps you compound because you, you're just always losing less when the market drops. And if you're able to reinvest and be a little bit more uh, aggressive on the way up, uh, then you should do okay. And that's why I didn't do as well as others on the way back from March 2020, but we had gone down less. And so this adjustment, this downside capture that's, that's lower compounds really well. I don't have the volatility tax as well, which is a interesting concept. And if you, the volatility tax is the difference between the average yearly return and the compounded yearly return. So if you go up 100% down 50, up 100 down 50, up 100 down 50, your average return is gonna be positive, but your compounded return is gonna be zero. That's called the, the volatility tax. For my products, there's very little of that because my fund is quite steady. As impressive as those numbers are. So here's the question that was through the app earlier on that I need you to answer. Yeah. After a year like you've had, is it too late to buy global value long short? I've had a few of those discussions uh, personally with some people I'm close to, and uh, I've, I've been able to convince them to stay or add their, to their positions simply because the process on the long side is very similar to large cap. So, and, and most people who have been in large cap really understand it well. And then on the short side, um, what I like to explain is the evolution of what we can short. Last year, what was short were egregiously overpriced securities. There were massively overpriced concept stocks, and we shorted a few other ones here and there. And now this year, the, the nature of what I'm shorting is slightly different. And as I said, I'm even now shorting securities that are great businesses, but just egregiously overpriced. And you go along much cheaper companies that are better quality. And you can do that if you have the world as your oyster. I don't need to be invested in you know, hundreds of securities. This can be you know, between 50 and 100 securities combined long and short. And so, you know, it's, it's, it's a product that can get there. It has all of 
what you need to add a little bit of return with less volatility than what I've had in large cap. Mm -hmm. I have the experience and hopefully the market has pummeled into me enough humility to position myself appropriately as well. So I think all the ingredients are there to have a fund that is effectively what large cap is, but on a global basis with a little less volatility, hopefully, and a little bit more return, also hopefully. But if your Canadian large cap is 17%, let's say you, got, you did better because you were global on the other side, where is the return coming from? Is it coming from the long side, or is it coming from the short side, or is it 50-50? This year, on an absolute basis, it's about one-third long and two-thirds short. Uh, two minutes left, there is a question. Any shorts that eventually became buys? No, but one is pretty close. I mean that, and I love to surprise people. Uh, I don't, I don't mind it at all. If if a stock is a buy, it's a buy, and vice versa. I've been critical of gold companies for a long time, and eventually bought some. Oil and gas is the same. I didn't own it for a long time, and then eventually decided in 2020 that I was going to make it a really large part of Canadian large cap fund. So I love uh, to analyze and to to surprise myself or others with you know, a company that, wow, it's gone from really bad to really good. So yes, there's two or three that I can think about are names that were egregiously overpriced last year, and they're down more than 80%. And they're actually now, as Brett and Dave were talking about, in the camp of companies that could get acquired, but on top of that, they have a free cash flow yield that's attractive. The problem typically with tech at this point in the cycle is stock-based compensation, which clouds a lot of everything that's going on because they just give it out like candy. Mm. So it's just you just have to try to figure out how much uh, less they're gonna give out in the next few years, hopefully. And if not, then it's probably not a buy. We look forward to seeing you on the stage again, Dan. Great to have you here. Good to be here, thank you. Thank you for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity mutual funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash how to buy for more information. While visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time.